Genesis chapter 8. We're returning to our Sunday morning series through the book of Genesis. Some may have forgotten this was our Sunday morning series because it's been a month since we last met together in this book. Some of you have been suffering from withdrawals. Amen. I, I can see it's, you're ready for some more Genesis. It's been so long because I'm contractually obligated to give you a, Sunday, a Mother's Day message, and uh, I, I did that, and because that went over so well, I did a follow-up the next week, and um, then we had Pete Hartle here with us for graduation weekend, and boy, what a job he did. Um, I told him, I said, man, you could be my pastor. I just love hearing him preach, and so great message uh, when he was with us, and then, of course, last week I was gone, but um, we're back. We're ready to get into Genesis and I just wanted to take a week off because we're hitting our busiest time of the year, and it's going to be nonstop now uh, for quite a while. So I took advantage of the calendar. I took a drive, went to see my parents, and had a great visit with them. Amen? Amen. In fact, I had such a great visit. Can I just encourage you, if your parents are still alive, make the most of it. Amen? Amen. If, there's a, if there's a wedge Satan has driven in there, man, get that thing out and, and honor them and love them uh, with the time you have remaining with them. And so anyway, uh, after all this time has elapsed in our series, I'm not sure it'd do a whole lot of good to remind you of all that I've covered in this chapter, and so we're not going to do that. Of course, I do ask you to go back and listen if you've missed anything. I'm just going to give you a very uh, generic um, outline of, of where we're at here. And in this chapter, we've seen the end of God's global judgment upon the world, upon ungodliness, and the flood has now come to an end. We've seen the patience of Noah as he's waiting to exit the ark and and waiting on God's timing. And then over the last two messages, we've considered how Noah's first priority upon exiting the ark was to honor God. And he builds this altar, and he honors the Lord. And so let's pick up where we left off. Genesis chapter 8, let's read verses 20 through 22. And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord, and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night, shall not cease. Amen. So over the last two messages, I've preached from this set of verses, and uh, we've made it all the way through the first statement of verse 21, and I want to pick up where we left off, after the Lord smelled a sweet savor. We read this, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. Now I want you to take this passage and compare it to Genesis chapter 6. You're right there if you want to read along. Genesis chapter 6, look at verses 5 through 7. Love hearing pages turn in church, amen? I know some of you are all electronic and stuff. I like hearing the pages, amen. Beep, boop, 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 boop. I don't know if that has the same, same ring to it. I'm not against you, I'm just saying. Uh, now let's contrast this here, Genesis 6, verses 5 through 7. And God saw 
that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And he repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. And you can go back to chapter 8, but... I find the comparison of these two passages interesting. In chapter 6, we find God is grieved in His heart and He promises to destroy the earth. And now in chapter 8, God is pleased in His heart and He promises not to destroy the earth again with a global flood. And What I really want you to notice though is in these comparisons... In both chapters, God still recognizes the evil heart of man. Did you see that? That part hasn't changed. In chapter 6, God says, Every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Chapter 8, God says, For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Two different promises, two different outcomes. But the imagination of man's heart is still evil. So what gives? Why two different promises, two different outcomes, when man is still having the problem they have? Well, one striking difference that I want to submit to you this morning for your consideration, and we're just going to make an application from this, is that now in chapter 8 we find that there is an attitude of worship. An altar has been built. Sacrifices have been made to God. Except for Noah and him leading his family back in chapter 6 before the flood, the worship of God was missing throughout all humanity. We know that to be true because they were all killed in the flood. Now, there were people who still worshiped God up till Methuselah died. But I'm just saying, overall, humanity had, had just forgotten about God. It kind of sounds like today. And so, chapter 8, the worship of God is now present. And listen to me, this is what God had desired from His creation all along. He wants your worship. Revelation 4.11, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. You're created to worship God. That's what pleases Him. God's heart was grieved in chapter 6 because overall mankind refused to acknowledge God. God promised to destroy life as a result. But now in chapter 8, there's this acknowledgement of God. There's an attitude of worship to God. And in this atmosphere of worship, God now makes a promise that He'll preserve life. Generally speaking, I don't think I would be out of line to say this morning that when God is not worshipped, there is destruction. When God is worshipped, there is blessing. And frankly, this principle is clearly seen throughout the Bible. I think it's important to know God makes this promise in chapter 8 when Noah is giving glory that is due to God's name. 
He's in the attitude of worship. Now, understandably, people want God's blessing. I'm assuming everybody here desires that. You want the blessings of God in your life. That's great. People want God to come through for them in their hour of need. People want God to fix their problems. They want to know the way ahead in in times of uncertainty. There's nothing wrong with this, and in fact, you ought to be turning to God. Amen. But the problem is, many will only look to God after their life is a mess. There's been no atmosphere of worship, in some cases for years. And then people wonder, why does God seem so distant from me? They never seem to consider that they are the ones who have departed from God until things got out of control. Everybody with me? Because we're going we're gonna to hit this home in your living room. Why is my life like this? Why are things going on? Why does God feel so distant? It's, it's in the midst of a crisis, after the ship is sinking, people start looking to God. But the truth is, many people are sinking because they have not been honoring and worshiping God with their life. Now in their crisis, people decide, I'm going to give God a shot. You've seen it, I've seen it. Well, Lord, I've got no other choice now. I'm going to give you a shot. And I can't help but wonder, is God going, but where have you been? Where have you been lately? Why haven't you been reading your Bible? Why haven't you been praying before now? Why haven't you been faithful to attend church? I can't tell you how many times someone has come to me or my wife and at some point in the conversation I'll be reminded of how I just preached on that. Isn't that true? I just preached on that. Where were you at? Because listen, when life starts falling apart and you start wanting answers, you should have been here. Because these things are covered and I can't help but wonder, maybe you could have saved yourself a lot of mess in your life if you just would have been here to take what is given from God and apply it in your life. And so what people do is they try to scooch up next to God when their crisis hits because now they're desperate. And and they, they want God to help them with their unknowns. When what they should have been doing all along is worshiping God based upon what they do know. Y'all help me preach now. Hey, listen, I'll give you some examples. I know God saved me. He's worthy of my worship. I know God has justified me. He's worthy of my worship. I know God has preserved me. He's worthy of my worship. I know God bled to establish the church. He's worthy of my attendance. I know God delights in prayer. He's worthy to hear from me. But no, things go well for a season or they just haven't gotten quite bad enough and there's no worship, there's no church life, there's no prayer life, and then we have the audacity to accuse God of not being there to bail us out of our crisis. Because we aren't often 
living righteously as Job was in, in his affliction, we need to understand that our crisis is usually the result of us not honoring and worshiping God. So I want you to get this. The, the promise of God at the end of Genesis chapter 8 only comes after Noah is honoring and worshiping God here. Now, God blesses when we are in the attitude of worship. And that's really what I want to get to you here in verse 22. And, and for those who don't know, biblical worship isn't swaying back and forth with your hands towards heaven looking up as somebody plays an acoustic guitar on stage. Now I'm not against that, amen? We could use a little life. Hey, man! <laughs> but biblical worship is bowing with your face to the ground. Amen. The first time the word worshiped, uh, worship is used in the Bible is Genesis 24-26. And it says, And the man bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord. The word worshipped means to depress yourself. Not to have a pity party but to depress, to, to bow yourself physically. Now, I understand as your body ages, it's harder to do. Some of y'all, if y'all were to lay flat out and worship God, that might be it. Amen. <laughs> At least they died worshiping God. Amen. I, uh, sister, can we help you up? Are you okay? No, she's dead. So... It could just be, listen, it, it, it could be laid out before God and your face to the ground. It could be just kneeling before God. And it can be just as simple as bowing your head. Worshiping God, depressing yourself before the Lord. And I would just put it simply this way. Worshiping God is humbling yourself. James 4.10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He shall lift you up. Worship is the act of lowering you, it minimizes you, and it magnifies God. It's the physical act of acknowledging God is worthy. It's really kind of like going to an altar in humility and bowing before God, worshiping God. Music is praise. We often call it worship. It's praise. There's a difference between the two. Here's what I've learned. When we lower ourselves and we elevate God in our life and we truly worship Him, then sure enough, life begins to clear up. I'm not saying your problem's going away. But what I'm telling you is now the path through the troubles become clear. Amen? Peace through the crisis arrives. The assurance that God is able now rests upon you. And those blessings will begin to flow from God once again. Why? Because that's all God was wanting from you to begin with. I just want your worship. He knows you're not good enough. Yep. He knows that. He says, I just want your worship and your adoration. In some cases, and, and maybe many, we could have been spared a crisis by worshiping God to begin with. 
But when we don't, hear me well, but when we don't or we refuse, God will bring a circumstance bigger than us into our life to drive us back to our faces down before God. Are you with me? Why? Because God is always trying to bring you to Himself. He wants your fellowship. I don't understand that. Amen. I don't want your fellowship. (laughs) Chill out, chill out. I'm only only joking. But seriously, I don't. But no, seriously, I do. And and so, (laughs) we got to dig out of this thing right now. God wants your fellowship. Let that sink in. Who are we that God would want our fellowship? But He does. When's the last time you worshiped God? I don't mean a passing moment before your meal. That's good. I'm just talking about a purposeful time of I'm just going to kneel before God or or whatever your body is able to do. I'm going to humble myself before God and I'm going to set aside some time to have a purposeful attitude of worship. That word uh, sweet in verse 21, this is interesting, it means restful. And so when we worship God, it causes each of us to be at rest with each other. Why? Because our worship is a sweet savor rising up to God. What a blessing. Well, I'm sure I've spent more time on that than I needed to. Let's consider what God is promising. God says, I will not curse the ground anymore for man's sake. Now, not cursing the ground here needs to be taken into context. It's not that God, because remember, God cursed the ground after sin entered the world. God is not removing that curse. This has to be understood that God is not going to curse the ground as He just did with a global flood. And this clearly has to be the sense here because the end of the verse says, neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. The context is a global flood. But what I want us to pick up on here in this statement is that God says, I will not again curse the ground For man's sake. You know, a lot of people want to blame God. It wasn't God who put us in the mess we're in today. It wasn't God who created us and said, here, I'm going to put you in a world of sin. God created everything perfect. It was our rebellion against God which causes the mess that we're in today. God executed the judgment of the flood, yes, but it was man who provoked it because every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The blame belongs to us. Everybody with me? The blame belongs to us. Because listen, there's people today who say, I'm not that bad. You are that bad. And so we've got to understand where the blame rightfully belongs. It was our sinful decision to willfully turn away from God that has brought judgment upon us. Did you know you are your own worst enemy when you live apart from God? Yeah. You're usually your biggest problem. All right, welcome to Liberty this morning. We're we're glad you're here. Amen. We're all friends. Next we read in verse 21. You know what, let me just throw something in there because God just put it in my head about you being your own worst enemy. Uh, I'll never forget, Pastor Furs used to say, who you are when you're alone is who you are. Let that sink in. What you do when no one else is around, that's who you really are. 
Next we read in verse 21, For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Well, isn't this interesting? Are, are you catching this here? Get this. God has just destroyed the ungodly. Wickedness, He's, he's, clean, he's cleansed the earth. And yet, there's only eight souls alive. And God here says, The imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Noah was a righteous man. We saw that back in Genesis chapter 6. And yet what we find here is that this is an indictment against humanity, which included Noah. The, the imagination of his heart is evil from his youth. And so what we discover is the flood may have cleansed the environment, but it did not fix the problem of the sin nature in the heart of man. This is very important to understand. And, and this is why, you know, we have to be re reminded of the fact that you can raise your kid as perfect as you know how. Their heart's evil. Amen? My heart's evil. L listen, Adam and Eve were in a perfect environment. They sinned. Noah here, the earth has been cleansed. The environment's clean. There's, there's no rock music. There's no drugs. There's no, you know, all those things we like preaching. There's none of that. And yet his heart's wicked. It's evil. He, he's prone to do things that he, he doesn't want to do. And we're going to see that's going to happen, not today, but later on. And, and so the, the heart of man, it has not been fixed. And I'm not going to get into the weeds on this, but from God's statement, I can say that with all due respect to any who ascribe to din, dominion theology, it ain't going to happen. And, and that goes for the progressive social gospel movement as well. God's not ascribing to it here. We cannot make the world a better place. It takes God. Hey, listen, Jesus had 12 and one of them was a devil. All right, well, God is saying here that we are born sinners. Our heart's evil from our youth. This is why we acted up as a child. This is why our children acted up just like we acted up. This is why as adults we still have issues throughout our life. Why? We have a heart problem. No one had to teach us how to sin. We figured it out with no help. I've never had to tell my children, no, 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 good grief, you're doing it all wrong. Watch me. If you're going to pitch a fit, you've got to really stomp your feet and you've got to pound your head and you got ah! Now you try. All right, that's close, but you're not quite there. You're not quite pitching a fit yet. No, listen, they know how. It's just, I never had to teach a kid how to pout. No, get the lip out there further. I want you to be able to step on it. This is, this is serious, right? Never had to teach somebody how to be angry, how to lie. Some, somehow my parents always knew when I was lying. That bothers me now, but because I don't know that I have that gift. Um, we didn't have to be taught how to be greedy, how to steal, how to be mean. I guess we could go on and on, but we were born like that already. Because we were born knowing how to sin and how to please our flesh, what did we have to be taught instead as children? This is what's right. You can't act that way. We, we had to be taught, and really this is what parenting is all about. When you think about it, parenting is about teaching children to recognize the severity of their sin nature that dwells in them, curb it, 
by bringing it under your control until that child either accepts Christ or they go out and make a mess of their life. Amen. That's what we're trying to do as parents. We're trying to get you to understand, no, you've got a wicked heart from your youth up. And I'm trying to bring that under control. That's why I discipline you. Because God is saying our heart is evil from our youth, then at this point in humanity, what I'm getting at here is that Genesis 3.15 is still in effect. Right? God is going to bring the promised seed who's going to come on the scene and He's going to uh, crush the head of Satan. Bruise the head of Satan, it says. And so Christ is still on the way because man has a sinful heart. God recognizes that we all have a birth defect. But God isn't going to give us some tips on how to live better. God isn't going to enroll us in self-help programs with X amount of steps. God isn't going to teach us how to be empowered. God isn't going to work on us from the outside in, but He knows that we must be dealt with from the inside out. This can only be brought about through the new birth. Amen. Being born again. And, and having the indwelling of the Holy Ghost once we experience the second birth. Listen, true Christianity is about an internal transformation. And it will work its way outward. This is completely foreign to what religions teach. Re- religions seek to fix you on the outside. Well, do this, do that, do that, do this. Serve this way. You've got to pay this much. you got to do that. God knows our old nature. It's too far gone. Even Paul said, as for me and my flesh, there dwells no good thing. And so God gives us a new nature. He makes us a new creature. That's when we come to Christ alone for salvation. And so this is a very important statement by God that we need to get a hold of. Our heart is the heart of the problem. Have you received a new heart through Christ? It's the only way to be in good standing with God. We cannot be good enough. So we needed Christ's righteousness to be transferred to us. So stop trying to clean clean yourself up before you come to God. You can't do it. Even if you think you're clean enough, you're not. Only God can fix what is broken in your life. And God will reach deep within and He'll do a work in your heart. And if you're in Christ, as I said, those, what take, what's taking place internally will begin to manifest itself outwardly. That's why John the Baptist said, why don't you bring forth fruits meet for repentance? Let me see something that shows your heart's where you say it is. Would y'all be okay if we go ahead and try to finish this chapter? I, I know you have to say yes. Um, verse 22, let's try to do this. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Believe me when I tell you I had to really fight getting on my soapbox here. Uh, Brother Mike, I wanted to make it an entire sermon next week. And I resisted. That will cause me to be a little bit more abrasive. So forgive me. And and you know I'm fighting this because I was a meteorologist for 21 years. Climate change is a farce. 
you don't have to agree with that. I know I'm right. Some of you are old enough to remember. Remember what they were saying back in the 70s? They were worried about global cooling. Then in the 90s, it was global warming. <laughs> global warming. What, did Florida see their highest increase this year? People moving in? <laughs> Obviously, people ain't concerned. Now, somebody had the bright idea, let's just call it climate change, and we can cover everything. Well, that was actually pretty smart, but, you know, still wrong. None of it panned out the way they thought it was, so they go, let's call it climate change. Why is this important to bring up in church? I'm sure you're asking. I have several reasons. One is because our children are being taught by the world that they need to be concerned with what they drive, what they eat, how much the cows flatulate, and all these things. Am I right? And in South Dakota, I mean, cows, that's our business. Amen? Another, another reason is, if you want to just get down with it here, what, our liberties are being sacrificed on the altar of climate change. That's a fact. You know, there's a move to take away gas stoves. Would you rather me use wood? Why is this agenda being so pressed upon us? Listen, I, I know I'm in delicate ground here because I know there's probably some young people, this is what they've been taught in college. Why is this agenda being so pressed on us? It's because governments love a good crisis. And they're not going to let a crisis go to waste. And they're fine creating one if need be. Some of y'all are going to think I'm whack by the end of this. Whether you like hearing this or not, it's all to keep us in line. Do yourself a favor when you have some time. Study the, the Reichstag fire of 1933. It was pivotal in, in the establishment of Nazi Germany. Shortly after that fire, and there's debate on who started it, some think it was, it was actually the Nazis in order to propagate this fear, but shortly after the fire, the decree of the Reich president for the protection of the people and state was enacted, and it abolished freedom of speech, assembly, privacy, and the press, legalized phone tapping and interception of correspondence, and suspended the autonomy of federal, federated states. What happened? An event was used to sow fear into the public in order to grab more power and achieve a desired political end. And so essentially what you do is you create a problem to get people into a state of fear, and then you can't control them. Does this sound like anything we saw recently? <laughs> Once people are in fear, the government can come along and say, you can trust us with political power and we'll make sure this kind of thing never happens again. And in the process, what do people do? They willingly give away their liberties and they become enslaved to governmental powers. Now, why is this important in church? I've got a, I've got a reason more deep than I gave you earlier. It's important because we understand there's, there's going to be a push for a one-world government or the new world order. Because a global crisis will need a global solution, which is going to lead to a global government. I don't think anybody here has forgotten COVID-19. Do you remember the COVID passports? 
You create a global problem and people will believe it needs a global solution and the world immediately gave up their liberties. My son was traveling south, had to go to the ER in Kansas City and they said, we don't even test for viruses anymore. Oh, so what did we do for a year? Anyway, all right. Listen, this is nothing new. I I took all this out of my notes, but but the UN has been doing this for 30 years to address global issues they believe could be fixed with a global solution. But nothing has stuck quite like climate hysteria, which has become the ultimate fear tactic because regardless of where you're at in life, like they've tried to fix the poverty and population, all that. regardless of any of those things and women's rights and all these things that the UN has tried to address, climate affects everybody, right? Regardless of where you're at in life. The environment affects everyone, and, and that has caused this to be the ultimate fear tactic. I want you to understand that it's all a direct result of denying God and His Word. The stage for climate hysteria was set when evolution was believed. So how, can you, how can you say that? When, when the lie was believed that everything just happened by random chance because of a cosmic accident billions of years ago, then we better be extra careful as the top dog evolutionary species because we're already in a fragile state. This was all an accident. And if we're not careful, we could send the, forth, we, we could send the planet forth into a planetary crisis. Did you know you had that much power? Once you deny God is the one who created everything, that He's the one that put everything in motion, that He's the one that sustains everything, then why wouldn't you believe humans are capable of destroying that which God upholds? Come on now. I'm getting biblical now. You can can hate me on the other things. Therefore, we ought to curtail consumption. We ought to watch the population of the earth. I got into a bay once in Mississippi. I was there for tropical forecasting school. And the guy said, man, the world's overpopulated. He was diehard overpopulating guy. And I said, have you ever driven across the United States? He said, no. I said, do it sometimes. Come up to South Dakota where I'm stationed. I could literally take you at the time. I could literally take you to the edge of Rapid City there at the end of Fifth Street. That's it. Rapid City's behind me. There's nothing in front of me. There's plenty of space. All right, anyway, focus. We got to curtail consumption, population, our activity, because we are the ones causing the fragile state that we're in. But what does God's Word say? There's a novel idea. Can we really usurp God's power over nature and earth? Colossians 1.17, And He, God, is before all things, and by Him all things consist. Hebrews 1.3 says of Christ that He is upholding all things by the word of His power. In Psalm 75.3, God says He bears up the pillars of the earth. That's pretty convincing. Along with those passages, God is saying here in verse 22, relax, I'm in control. Everything is going to continue as I created it. While the earth remains, there's going to be seasons. There's going to be hot and cold. There's going to be day and night. The way I understand verse 22 is there will be four seasons. Seed time correlates to spring, right? Harvest correlates to fall. Summer and winter are clearly mentioned. It will not cease. If the politicians would just study the Bible, all the climate hysteria is over. Have you noticed it's the politicians pushing it? 
as they fly around to their conferences? Boy, your carbon footprint's a lot bigger than mine, John Kerry. Don't even get me started on Al Gore. That knucklehead was going around preaching against this stuff and bought an $8 million million property right on the beach in California when he was saying the oceans are going to rise and kill everybody on the beach. You hypocrite. Now, i got to say these things because somebody's going to be upset with me. I'm not saying we're to just trash the environment. All right? God has called us to be good stewards, and we ought to do that. We can embrace common sense environmental measures without it becoming worship. You see, good stewardship has been perverted into something bad today. So if you happen to be in the camp that's worried about our planet, you don't have to worry. There's always going to be, and I can't believe Pastor Garmo said this in Sunday school because I'm like, dude, quit looking at my notes. Um, There's there's always going to be uninterrupted seasons. The earth has cycles. It has nothing to do with burning fossil fuels or cows. You don't have to worry about an asteroid taking us out. I see those articles about once a week. There's one heading to us. It's the size of the Empire State Building, and yet I never even see the thing in the sky. You know, it's like, okay, whatever. You don't have to worry about aliens. That's a big one. You don't have to worry about the Death Star, right? It's not going to come in and blow us up. The earth will do what God has created it to do while it remains. Say, how long is it going to remain? Until He destroys this one by fire and gives us a new earth. He's going to purge this one. Well, I hope you're happy I just condensed an entire sermon into like eight minutes. You're welcome. Maybe you're living in fear today. Listen, I I know this is real. We can see it in the protests that we see around the world. People are, are legitimately in fear that this world is going to collapse and we're going to have sunburns year round. I love it when somebody said, aren't you concerned that it's going to raise two degrees over the next hundred years? I said, so you mean in my lifetime, the average high in January and rapid will be 32 to 33? I'm down with that. Amen? I'm down with that. Let's do it. Maybe you're living in fear of some global crisis. Uh, You either need to get back to the Bible or you need that internal transformation that I talked about earlier. Maybe you need some good news this morning. I'll tell you, the gospel means good news. The good news is God can give you a new heart. He can remove all your fears. But you have to come to Christ. And you have to trust Him alone for your salvation. It's free to you, but it wasn't free. He paid it all on the cross. If anybody needs to respond this morning, I invite you to do that. Let's pray.